Good morning. Over the past couple of weeks, as I've been preparing for today, I've been agonizing over some kind of opening story or some hook. I like to share something fun at the beginning, and, and it just hasn't come, and nothing has come to mind, and, and it was getting really frustrating. And then I really felt like the Spirit just opened my eyes to the fact that God's Word is enough. And so that's where we're going to start this morning. Uh, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians chapter 2. And we will begin reading with verse 1. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. That's us, right? Every single one of us were once dead in our trespasses and sins. We were under the control of our father, the prince of the power of the air. We didn't necessarily know that we were under his control, but we most definitely were. We all lived according to the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of our flesh and the desires of our minds. And that's the evidence that we were under control of Satan, because that's what he wants, right? He wants for us to be inward focused. He wants for us to be self-focused, indulging every desire we have for knowledge or wealth or power or pleasure, thinking only of ourselves, serving ourselves, essentially worshiping ourselves. And because that's who we were, we were, by our very nature, children of wrath. We were rushing toward our ultimate end, a godless eternity, where we would have experienced the wrath of God for all of eternity. We were children of wrath. This is who we all once were. But let's return to our text, again starting with verse 1, but this time let's read all the way through verse 10. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand 
so that we would walk in them. You see the incredible contrast in that passage? We were dead in our sins, completely self-absorbed, thinking only of ourselves, indulging our flesh, children of wrath, and deservedly so, but God. God, who is the source of all life, while we were inward-focused and completely dead, thinking only of ourselves, God was outward-focused. God, the the source of all life, was outward-focused. He was thinking about us, too. God, who is rich in mercy and who has a great love, has lavished these things upon us selfish, undeserving people. We were dead. He gave us life by the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ. We weren't looking for God. We did nothing to deserve His love. And in spite of those facts, He came looking for us. And He has chosen to lavish the surpassing riches of His grace and kindness upon us. And He will continue to do so for all of eternity. And here's the cherry on top. After doing all of that, He has enlisted us into his service. He's given us the best job in the world working for him. He doesn't need us. He could accomplish everything he wants to accomplish without any one of us. But he's chosen to include us, to make us part of his plan, his story. We get to be active participants in God's story. What kind of God is this? Who would send his one and only perfect, sinless son to be tortured, mocked, spat upon, and murdered for the purpose of redeeming self-serving, Satan-serving, 100% self-indulgent people lost in their trespasses and sins by the blood of his son. There's no words for that kind of God. And how do we respond to a grace like that? Well, we walk in those works that he's prepared for us with thanksgiving in our hearts, right? That's how we do it. This is the gospel. This is the good news that Jesus took my guilt. And I can assure you, I have plenty of it. And so do you. He took all of our guilt, all of our shame, all of our sin upon himself and died a gruesome death in our place. Not one of us deserved it. We're all unworthy. Yet he has lavished his love and mercy and grace upon us because it pleased him to do so. And out of gratitude for what he has done, we now have the privilege of walking in the good works which he has prepared for us to do. Now right now you might be thinking, I thought this was a marriage sermon. If you saw the title up there earlier. Well, keep thinking that. Turn to Ephesians chapter 5. And we're going to begin reading with verse 22. Just a few pages up. Ephesians 5, beginning with verse 22. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, 
Love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church. Because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Let's pray. Father, there are no words to express our gratitude for your love and your grace and your mercy to us. We do say thank you, but we know that's not adequate to express how we really feel. Lord, I pray that in the, the coming moments that we would, uh, your word would speak to us as we unpack how the gospel is revealed in the marriage relationship. Make it clear to us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The passage we just read from Ephesians chapter 5 is the, the most complete teaching on marriage in the New Testament. And this is where we're going to spend the bulk of our time today. And I want to kind of tackle it in reverse. And here's why. Now, keeping in mind all that we have just read from Ephesians chapter 2 about God's great mercy and His great love and His incredible grace. Keeping all that in mind, look at chapter 5, verse 31, which says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Well, how exactly? How exactly is that speaking to Christ and his church? What's the connection between Paul going from Genesis 2 and then transitioning to this is what this is really talking about is Christ in the church. What he's saying is that when God created marriage all the way back in Genesis chapter 2, he wasn't thinking to himself, I wonder how marriage should work. I know, I'll make one of them talk a lot. And I'm going to give the other one selective hearing. So they never really comprehend each other. It'll be, it's mysterious, right? That's not the mystery. That's not the mystery. The mystery is that he designed marriage intentionally from the very beginning to be a picture of Christ and the church. Long before the incarnate Christ was ever born in that manger. So Paul says, it's a great mystery Moses and the people of the Old Testament had no idea. They could not have understood the significance of marriage, what was happening when God created marriage. They couldn't understand that. Now, let me put it another way. Uh, Paul's not saying, I'm going to use the gospel as an illustration to help us understand marriage. 
He's not saying that. Instead, he's saying God's design from the very beginning was to give us an illustration in marriage of the way Christ loves his people. God is saying in marriage, you want to know how my son loves his people? Just take a look at marriage and you'll see a picture of the gospel. Now stop for a minute and think about the significance of this. Paul is saying to wives, you give a picture of the church to the world in your role as wife. Verse 22, wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Wives give a picture of the redeemed church of Christ to the world in your role as wives. And husbands, it's saying to you that you give a picture of Christ to the world in your role as husband. Look at verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by washing of water with the word that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Husbands give a picture of Christ to the world around them in their role as husband. Each of our marriages give a picture to the world of Christ's relationship with his people. And it's a mandatory picture. And the reason I say it's mandatory is because you don't get to choose whether or not your marriage is giving the world a picture. It is. God designed it to do that, and so it will get done. Our marriage is giving a picture to the world. The question is, what kind of picture of the gospel is our marriage painting? So let's stop and talk about that picture as we see it in Ephesians 5, and then in a little bit we'll, we'll wrap up with some practical application. In the passage, wives are addressed first and then husbands, but I really want to flip that around and you'll see why as we progress. And the first thing I want to point out about husbands is actually in verse 23, which says, For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church. Now, I know this is obvious, but it doesn't say the husband should be the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. It doesn't say, you two can work this out amongst yourselves, who's going to be the leader? It says the husband is the head of the wife. It's a statement of fact. Husbands, in God's eyes, are the leaders of their marriage and their family. And if that ruffles any feathers, just hold on, because this isn't a statement about value or worth or capability. All the way back in the earliest chapters of Genesis, we see that male and female were equally created in the image of God. Equal worth, equal value. But what did God say were their roles? He said to Adam, it's not good for you to be alone. I will create a helper, right? Suitable for him. This wasn't a less valuable role. Eve was not created as a lesser reflection of the image of God. They were equally created in his image, but with different roles. Adam was the leader. Eve was to be his helper. 
And we see this concept repeated all throughout Scripture. This isn't just something that Paul created. But you know what we also see in this book? We see the incarnate Jesus placing great value on women. We see Jesus healing women. We see Jesus teaching women. We see Jesus uh, talking with women, which wasn't common in that day and age, but he placed an incredible value. He kind of changed the norm. It's not a value issue. God doesn't place higher value or worth on one gender over the other. But just in case you're still struggling with this concept, I want to show you 1 Corinthians 11.3, which says this, I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. You see how this issue of headship is not in any way talking about value. This verse, fully inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, is not giving a picture of inferiority and superiority. And we know this because God is the head of Christ. And yet we know Christ is fully God, right? He's fully deity. Christ was in full submission in his relationship with his Father. Throughout his entire ministry, he was constantly saying, I do only the things that my Father tells me to do. He was in complete submission to his Father's loving leadership. And because of this submission, God has now put all things under his feet, right? And because of his submission, uh, all authority on heaven and earth have been given to Jesus. And because of that submission, we now have the opportunity to have salvation. None of that would be possible if Jesus was in some kind of power struggle with his father. It's possible because Jesus recognized the incredible power in his submission to his father's leadership. So we all good now? Make sense? All right. So the first thing we've established about the male role in marriage is that male is to be the leader. But what should that leadership look like? So let's start. Look at verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. We love our wives by giving ourselves up. I struggled a bit with whether to tell this story, but the guy in the story is now deceased, and I'm not going to give you his name, so I think it's safe to tell. When I was a young teen, I overheard an argument between a married couple. And the, the source of this argument was that this family had some very dilapidated furniture. And the husband had promised his wife that when the tax check came, they could get a new couch. But she was at work when the tax check came, and he immediately went and used it to buy an aluminum fishing boat. This is a true story. <laughs> now, when the wife came home from work, she was obviously less than happy, and an argument ensued which was loud, loud enough for me to overhear from two or three rooms away. Terrible things were said. And at one point, I actually heard the husband say in a raised voice, the Bible says it's your job to submit to me, and we are keeping that boat. And they did. Would it surprise you to know that that marriage ended in divorce? 
Husbands, headship is not an opportunity for us to dominate our wives. It's an opportunity to serve. Headship is an opportunity for you and I to die to ourselves daily, to sacrifice ourselves daily, and to put our wives' needs and wants before our own. And here's the kicker. It's not even because your wife necessarily deserves for you to love her like that. Remember, marriage is this great mystery. It's a picture of the gospel. You know the gospel where what we deserved was to receive the wrath of God and instead Jesus took our place and died in the cross for us? Yeah, marriage is that mystery. So husbands, Paul says, love your wives like that. Love her with self-sacrificing love. Reflect Christ through sacrifice for your wife. And the reality is if God loves us based on his grace alone, then we better try to love our wives to the best of our ability in a self-sacrificing way. Right? But there's more. Look at verse 26. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Now this is what Christ does for us and his love for his bride, the church. He sanctifies her, right? He sanctifies us. So that when the time comes for Jesus to receive his church, the church will be lovely and beautiful. The work of Christ will have been accomplished. And it's the work of Christ that causes that transformation. Now, obviously, there's a difference between what we do as husbands and what, what Christ does. We don't die for the sins of our spouse. We don't have sanctifying power over our spouse. At the same time, what Scripture is showing us here is that as Christ's love for his bride causes growth and change, spiritual growth and change, our love for our wives should also promote spiritual growth and change. Pray with her. Study God's word with her. Go to church with her. And then talk about the things that you learned. Serve with her. Speak words of affirmation to her. Encourage her in what she does well. Help her to grow as a person in Christ. Now please understand that as I've been preparing this sermon, even as I stand here now, I feel conviction saying these things because I'm not good at a lot of them. I'm preaching to myself as much as to anyone else, but that's my job, right? I have to tell you what's true, even if it's personally uncomfortable. You know, my wife is sitting right there, and she knows that I'm not good at all this stuff. That's really uncomfortable. But I believe with all my heart that what this passage is teaching very clearly is that, husbands, we have a responsibility to help our wives to grow spiritually, to grow in spiritual beauty. That's part of our headship. Marriage is a picture of the gospel. And this is what Jesus does for all of us. He's sanctifying us. He's growing us. And husbands, in the marriage relationship, we're to love in the way that Jesus does. So help her grow in spiritual beauty.
Finally, look at verses 28 to 30. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. Now these verses I actually think are kind of funny. It's like God is almost appealing, or Paul, however you want it, the Holy Spirit is almost appealing to the, like the self-centered nature of maleness, right? He's like, you know how to love yourself. You sure nourish that thing well. You don't look like you're missing a lot of meals here. So love your wives like that, and things will be good. He kind of almost appeals to that self-centeredness that comes with, I think, being a male. And here's the thing. He's comparing loving our own wives to loving our own bodies. That's kind of a strange concept until you apply the analogy. What happens when we nourish and cherish our own bodies? We have good health, right? If we take care of our bodies, they function well. They endure all of the hardships that we put on them. They heal from injuries. They fight off illness. They take us where we want to go when we want to go there. And the same is true with our marriages. If we nourish and cherish our wives, the marriage endures all the hardships of life that inevitably come to us. So we nourish and cherish our wives by, again, giving ourselves up, by speaking words of affirmation, by not speaking harshly, by caring and comforting and communicating well. And once again, we are reminded that marriage is a picture of the gospel, right? Because Jesus Christ nourishes and cherishes us as his church. Make sense? Okay, let's talk about the role of the wife. And this will be brief because we've already touched on it. Look again at verses 22 through 24. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. And then in verse 33, we read the words, the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. So let's pause here for a moment and remember everything we've talked about until now. Like the gospel, God's mercy and grace and love for us. Jesus, in submission to the Father, willingly giving up his life and taking the wrath of God upon himself so that we could have salvation. And marriage is a picture of the gospel with husbands representing the love of Christ by giving themselves up for their wives and helping their wives to grow spiritually and encouraging their wives by speaking words of affirmation and serving and nourishing and cherishing their wives. You see why we talked about the husband's role first? If not, let me ask a different question. Ladies, would it be hard to respect and follow the leadership of a man who's truly striving to follow that example of Jesus Christ? It's not that hard, right? What wife wouldn't want to follow the leadership of a husband who literally lays down his life for her day after day? What wife wouldn't respect her husband who's doing that? But therein 
lies the rub, right, for both husbands and for wives, because none of us are always good at fulfilling our God-given roles, right? None of us are always good at this. There may be husbands here today who would say, but Jerry, you don't, you don't understand who I'm married to. Uh, she treats me with disrespect and doesn't really respond to loving leadership. Our whole marriage feels like a power struggle. And there might be wives here today who would legitimately say, my husband doesn't lead in a sacrificial way. And as far as respect goes, he's not very respectable. Respect is something you have to earn. So where do we go from here? I've got a couple of suggestions. And the first thing is that we have to change the way we think about marriage and about our spouses. If we want real change in marriages, if we want real change in any area of our life, change always starts with the way we think. Change thinking leads to change behavior. That's why Paul writes in Romans 12, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the, what? Renewing of your mind. So here's how change in marriage begins. When you're tempted to judge your spouse harshly, For their faults in marriage, just think about the gospel. Remember who you were before Jesus. Purposefully remember that God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ purely by his grace. We didn't deserve it. He didn't need us, but he chose us. In marriage, we choose our spouses. We don't live in a culture with arranged marriage, right? We all chose our spouse. And we all come into marriage broken. Every single one of us carry hurts and brokenness into our relationship. We carry sinful tendencies into our marriage. And none of us is truly worthy of being loved by another person, or not. But like Jesus chooses to show us grace in marriage, we have the opportunity to put that grace of God on display toward our spouses every single day. And that is not an accident. That's the great mystery, right? That marriage was designed by God to be a picture of the gospel, It doesn't matter whether we want our marriages to paint a picture of the gospel or not. They're painting one because God designed it that way and God's plans cannot be thwarted. So husbands, when we choose to be harsh with our wives or to be self-serving in our leadership or to be neglectful, the picture we're painting for the world around us is that Jesus is harsh or self-serving or neglectful of his church. And wives, when you choose to be disrespectful with your husband or become disengaged or disappointed in his leadership, the picture you're painting is that the church is disrespectful or disengaged or disappointed in Jesus' leadership. But the good news is that because of what Jesus has done and because of the work of the Holy Spirit in us, we can choose to paint a picture of grace instead. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives with me. I can choose to walk in the Spirit. And I know we spend a lot of time at Rock Prairie talking about evangelism, and we should think about that. We should talk about that. 
But one aspect of evangelism we don't think about and talk about enough is that the way we love and honor and show grace to our spouses is a powerful evangelism tool. You want to put God on display to everyone in your orbit of influence, in your sphere of influence? Love your spouse well. Show grace to your spouse. There's no clearer picture of what God is like than two people, one man and one woman, in a grace-filled marriage. Amen? One last thing I want to talk about before we part ways today. I want to tell you about one way you can invest in strengthening your marriage. Over the years, Kim and I have had many friends in this church who have gone through divorces. We used to have a life group. We led the Lighthouse group for a lot of years, and there were about 40 people in that group. It was a big group. And we left that role. When I came on staff in 06, we left the role of leadership of that group. And since then, many people who were a part of that group who were, I mean, we did life together. We loved them. No longer together. We just learned about one this week that had moved away that we didn't know that they're gone. They're, they're, they're not married any longer. And so a few years ago, we began uh, just thinking about and dreaming about marriage ministry at Rock Prairie because those people were not bad people. They were brothers and sisters in Christ. They were people that we loved and we did life with and we cared about them. But they got so busy with kids and jobs and hobbies and they just neglected their marriage. And so a few years ago, we really began to think about the necessity for marriage ministry in a local church, not just counseling, Counseling is dealing with a crisis. We don't want to get to crisis, right? So we, we were thinking about what can marriage ministry look like so that we don't end up in these crises. And as we were thinking about this and praying about it, I went to the D6 conference and by chance met a man by the name of Brad Rhodes. And Brad's an attorney, and he shared with me that courtroom litigation was his bread and butter. He, he loved to be in the courtroom. At one time, he was, at any one time, he was trying about 200 cases. But he had an issue. He said even though he owned his own practice, it was basically him and his brother and one paralegal, and they were barely making it. Even though they had all these cases, they were still financially, their business was just not thriving. And for some reason, they just couldn't get it figured out. So he hired a consulting firm who one day each quarter would come to the office take him out of the office, take him away, and they would do business strategy. One day a quarter. And within a couple of years, they had added staff and added an extra attorney, and they were just thriving. Things, just taking that one day a quarter to focus on business strategy really made all the difference for them. So then he started thinking, you know, my marriage is okay, but it's, it's kind of like my practice. It's not really thriving. You know, it's just kind of okay. And that's not okay. And so they started to apply this same principle. What if we just took one day a quarter and focused on marriage? And through that, those thoughts, a, a ministry called Grace Marriage was born. Grace Marriage involves couples attending one six-hour workshop four Saturdays a year, 8 a.m. to 2 p.m. It's a minimal investment, setting aside six hours, four times each year, to prioritize our most important horizontal relationship. It's not a huge commitment. It's not a huge ask, right? But it reaps a huge harvest. 
We've had Grace Marriage functioning here for two years now. We've had probably 50 couples all together, I think, who have participated. I know Kim and I have benefited. I think every one of those couples would say they got some benefit from it. Because at the end of each day, every couple comes away from Grace Marriage with a custom plan that they designed during the course of the day for something they want to work on in the next quarter in their marriage. And so it's, it's just incredibly valuable. And the reason we're talking about it now is because the new year of Grace Marriage begins in November, and we would love every married couple at Rock Prairie to, to sign up and be a part of this ministry. It doesn't matter how long you've been married. This year we had a couple that was like literally newlywed, and we had a couple that had been married 40-plus years, and we had everything in between. And so it doesn't matter how long you've been married. I think it's beneficial. Um, I think, again, every one of those couples would say good things. Well, hopefully we'll get some videos in the next few weeks, getting some testimonies from some of these people, what they've experienced. Uh, the cost to participate for a year is $200, which includes all the printed materials, uh, Grace Marriage online, as well as we feed everybody snacks and a really nice meal every time we're together. And yeah, there's also some people in the church who believe in this ministry so much that they've made some large donations. And so if you don't have the $200, we have plenty of money for scholarships available. So I would just like to invite everyone to be a part of this ministry if you're married. And that, you know, the gospel is reflected in our marriages. And I believe the gospel is worth us investing in the marriages so that we present a picture to those people in our sphere of influence that, that accurately reflects the gospel. So let's pray. Father, I thank you for today. Thank you so much for uh, the way you designed marriage to be that reflection of the gospel. Father, I pray for all of us to, uh, who are married to, to Lord, take this to heart and to present an accurate picture to the world around us of how your son loves his bride, the church. Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.